Good morning. My name is Jeff, and uh, we are going to jump in on all of that. Um, to begin with, though, we're catching up with, uh, with Ecclesiastes, and I have to give a kind of a forewarning that Darren has talked about the name Colette, and the, the idea there is the, the, the word actually means teacher or preacher, a collector of the things that he wrote, and that the Hebrew word is Colette. Now, some people think it might be Solomon. Some people aren't sure. You need to know that the reason I'm telling you this is that I lean on the side that it might be Solomon. Darren doesn't. He doesn't. He says, we don't know who it is. I agree with him. We don't know who it is, but I may slip this morning and say that it's Solomon. And I would also slip and say that I'm probably right. And that that's the way that goes. So just if I slip, know that that's what that's about. But you might hear me use Colette, the teacher, preacher, Solomon, that kind of a thing. But the, we're talking about this, the same person regardless. So um, obviously there's a lot here. We're going to jump right in in verse 8. And with verse 8, it starts off with this, as we know, he's been sort of stuck in this heaviness. In fact, uh, for some people, they look at it and go, man, whoever this Colette was, he was just confused. He was down. He was depressed. It was that kind of a thing. I read one commentary where the, the writer had stopped and said, actually, what he thinks happened, and this writer thought that it might be Solomon, that, that at that process... Solomon took some of his best stuff and put it into Proverbs. And this was a little more of a personal journal. That is, he was thinking through thoughts. He would put down some of the wandering thoughts, some of the things that are like, yeah, but what about this question? What about this hard truth? And what about that thing? That that was a journal that he kept for himself and then later on did get published. But it was the process that some of this was collected into Ecclesiastes. That this was a snapshot of life with some of the more difficult questions. And I think if you've been going through this series with us, you can that resonates with you. You're going, yeah, some of the deep thoughts I've had, some of the dark thoughts I've had, I find this writer talking about them. And I resonate with some of the, the wonderings that he has. Well, he starts off with one of those right now. In verse 8 of chapter 5, If you see in in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there is yet higher ones over them. So right off this bat is the idea that there's oppression and injustice. He recognizes it. He doesn't try to mask it. He doesn't try to say it's not there. He says, if it's there, don't be amazed at it. Like in other words, of course there's oppression. Of course there's injustice. Of course there's wickedness. And you look at it and go, well, man, it seems like if God's a good God and he's in control, things should be good and we shouldn't have so much oppression and injustice and we should be at amazed. But there's a brother Lawrence who wrote the, the book, uh, Practicing the Presence of God. He has a quote that I've remembered all these years from reading that, that where his perspective is that he stops and says, it's not the evil in this world that surprises me. It's knowing what man is capable of, that there is not more of it. And it's this idea that the possibility for evil by all of us is far greater than what we actually do. We, we sort of hold back a little bit and, and hopefully God has a big hand in that. 
But that's what Brother Lawrence says. He says, it's not the evil in this world that surprises me. It's knowing what man is capable of. There's not much more of it. That's a bit of what is being said here when he says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. But then he says, for the high official, the person that's over that and has allowed that to happen, is watched by a higher And there are yet higher ones over them. And so the concept is there's order. There's some type of authority at some point in line that even though there's injustice here, sooner or later, there will be consequences for it. So even if you have a captain who's doing bad things and he's got a general here, but there's a president there, there's ultimately a God here who is righteous and there will be consequences. So he's saying there will be evil. You're going to see even kings that are over that. But there's always somebody over that and somebody over that. And he's alluding to the idea that God will be there. But then it takes a turn. And uh, we're going to read it in this way. That the high official is watched by a higher. And there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. And I know if you're like me, you're like, oh, that explains it all. Right? What, what did he just say? We're talking about oppression and injustice. And now we're talking about kings and authority. I kind of get that. And now we're talking about farming. What is the point of that? Why does that show up? And a really fun thing happened is I'm studying that. I'm reading the different commentaries. And most of the time, they're, they're taking a swing at it this way, taking a swing at it that way. If you've got your Bibles, um, some of your Bibles will have this footnote. But there's a footnote at the very bottom of the page. And it says, the meaning of the Hebrew verse is uncertain. What that means, because that's scholarly for sin. We don't know. That's what they really mean. Now, they, that's what it should have said at the footnote. We don't know what that means. That that scholars aren't sure of exactly what it means. And so I'm reading these different perspectives and none of them are really satisfying me. And literally I get a little alert in one of my news things that I follow online. And there's a story about the USAID and the World Bank. USAID is the part of the federal government that sends out aid and support for parts of the world that are going through tragedy. Whether there's a hurricane or flooding Or maybe there's a war going on, but there's some kind of crisis going in a poor country. And this country can't take care of itself. It's really in trouble. So out of compassion, the U.S. puts billions of dollars available so that we can help other parts of the world that are going through some tragic situation. That's called USAID. And then the World Bank is kind of the whole same kind of thing with all of the world. The different banks, the different finances from different countries, they all put into the World Bank. So these two things are two large organizations that move literally billions to trillions of dollars to help people that are in desperate situations. So this news article comes in and says that USAID and the World Bank has just now determined that actually agriculture is two to three times more effective than any other effort they do in a country. They can do education, they can do finance, they can do infrastructure, they can do all kinds of things to try to help a country in trouble. But after all of this time, they've determined the best thing they can do to help a country is to actually establish cultivated fields. 
This is fascinating. This is thousands of years later, this very phrase that says, if you've got a lot of mess going on somewhere, this verse, verse 9, this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. In other words, the best thing that he could do is literally do cultivated fields. The reason for sharing this isn't so that you now have, oh, I know what I'm going to do if I'm going to help a, a country in trouble. It's more the concept that you recognize that the writer here, the teacher, the preacher, is actually pretty smart. He's nailing something. He's putting down some truths. As we jump into these three chapters, what you're going to find are some principles and some elements that contain truth. They contain value. Try to hold off at bay that this writer is just confused. He doesn't know what he's doing. But instead, realize that there are some things he's saying that are true and that we can learn from. So with that, we jump into verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So just before we jump into to money, here comes that word vanity again. And just as a reminder, this isn't like, well, you're so vain. This isn't the vanity of pride, nor is this the vanity that's in your bathroom like a cabinet. It's not that kind of vanity either. This is the vanity that it was a vain effort, that the effort didn't accomplish anything. It was, it, it was meaningless. It's like breath. It's, it's like it's vapor. It's not really there. The best example I can give is that when I was a kid, and maybe even sometimes as an adult, you're driving down. It's a warm day. You've got the window down, and you're driving along the, the freeway or a highway, and it's just a beautiful day. And you roll down your window, and you put your arm out the window, and you start doing this with your hand, making it like a little plane. And if you do this, you put it up, and it flows. Anybody? Am I the only one? Has anybody ever done that? Oh, good. Because I was thinking maybe I'm just, well, I am still weird. But the, the idea is, is that you're doing this, and you're making your hand go up and down. And every now and then you try to grab it and get it cupped like that. Well, all we've ever done as, as children is you can try to grab it in your hand and bring it inside the car. And when you open up your hands, what's there? Nothing. That's the word hevel. That's the idea that it's vain to grasp that wind. You put it out there, you grab it, you bring it in, and there's nothing there. That's the idea. And it's that idea that he uses when he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. See, the Bible's even saying it just like that. I think that, that Solomon probably drove along in a chariot with his arm out there, just like this. This is the picture that he's trying to explain. But this idea about money, and we, we've all wrestled with this, and I'm not poor. In fact, I, I would say that right now it's hard for us who live in America to even consider ourselves poor, but it feels poor sometimes, right? And there have been times in my life when I've been poor. And so that when I read a verse like this, like it's not good to be rich. And I'm like, well, I'd like to try just for a little bit, just a couple of days of having a little bit of money. It'd be kind of fun to try. 
In fact, um, if you've ever seen the movie or the play Fiddler on the Roof, Tevier is wrestling with this concept. Tevier is a farmer. He's, uh, he's a Jew living in Russia, and he's being oppressed. There's all kinds of things that are going on in the country that are bad. It's really turning out bad for him. The crops are going bad. And so he's in a barn one day. He's feeding his animals. He's frustrated by the fact that he has no resources, has very little money. And he begins to talk to God as he's feeding his cows. And just before he starts singing the song, If I Were a Rich Man, this is what he says. He looks up at God and he says, oh, dear Lord, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. What would have been so terrible if I had but a small fortune? And then he goes into singing, if I were a rich man. Have you not felt that? Are there times when you stop and go, oh, come on, God, just a little bit would solve all of these problems. Well, this is what Colette is saying. He's going, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. It doesn't. And so he says it's only vanity. In fact, he comes off and he says it hurts you in many ways. And if you, we won't go through and look at every verse on this. But in verse 8, we already know that he talked about oppression and injustice. Do you know where oppression and injustice comes from? From greed, from the love of money. Somebody else wants what you have and they oppress you and they take it, take it wrongfully. That's what oppression and injustice comes from, from somebody else's love of money. So it's the love of money that does that. In verse 11, it says there'll be an increase in people who want yours. And that's true. Whether that's the government or people in your family, people were like, you got money? I'd like some of that. And in verse 12, it says that you'll have little rest, that if you have a lot of money, you've got a lot of things that you're trying to manage. You're trying to maintain it. You're trying to keep it safe. And it creates more stress for you. And verse 13, it says that it even hurts. It'll bring hurt to you. It will change you. You won't be the same. And finally, in verse 14, it says, even after all of this, after all of those problems that money brings, you will still lose it in the end. In fact, it's guaranteed you will lose it. Listen to what he says in 15. 15, it says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil, all the work that he did, that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came so shall he go. And I don't know about you, but um, our babies, when we had children, when they were born, our babies were born with clothes on. No, your baby's not. There's never been a baby born with clothes on. Not even like a diaper, not a hat, no sunglasses. When they come into the world, they are absolutely naked. They're wearing nothing, they own nothing, they have nothing. As you come into the world, you have nothing. Now, when we come to the other end of life and you pass away, oh, we dress up the body, we put the body into clothes and stuff so that when they're in the casket and you come by for the viewing, that's not awkward, right? But the reality is, is when you're dead and you're gone, all that's left is the clothing. You don't take that with you when you go. The discovery of the Egyptian tombs has proven that. 
all the things they thought were valuable, they had buried with them in the tombs. And thousands of years later, we go into the tombs and guess what's there? All the stuff. You don't take it with you. Naked you come into the world, naked you go. It's not about nakedness. It's about the fact that all that toil, you don't get something that's yours. It passes through your hands while you're alive. And this is what Colette is saying. He's saying this concept is that ultimately it's not going to satisfy you. You will lose it. You won't keep it. And that's the idea. Let's jump to verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18 He then stops and says, behold, and this is a word that's different than anything else he's used. He's come out and he says, now, with all of that said, behold, I want your attention. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. So he's saying all this stuff before that's not good, that is a waste of time. It's it's vanity that you toil for this. He says, behold, I've seen something. And this is what he says. I have, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. Now, I know that that sounds initially like he's saying, this is what I've found. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. It's all going to be a waste. And oftentimes that's translated that way because people are kind of going, well, yeah, it seems like it's sort of hopeless then. If none of this matters, if you, if you come empty and you leave empty, then what does it matter? You, you know, you might as well just enjoy life while you're here. That's actually not what he's saying in this mix. In fact, that phrase, eat, drink, and marry for tomorrow you die, shows up in several passages in scripture. And it's not this. One of them is in Isaiah. And it literally is God about to curse and destroy. And they stop and go, hey, this whole thing's ending now. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. The other one is in the New Testament. When Jesus is telling the story of the, the rich guy who decides that he can make even more money. So he's going to build more silos. And he's like, I will have so much. I will be able to just sit back and eat, drink, and be merry. And it's Jesus who says, you fool. For tonight, your soul is required of you. In other words, it illustrates the same point. It's not giving value to you just should just go out and enjoy life. It literally is saying the opposite when it says eat, drink, and be merry. It's saying it's over, you're done, and this whole thing has been a waste. It's, it's echoing what's being said here. So what is he saying if it's not that? At this point, as you look at the words, what I have seen is, is the, the word seen is raha, a raa. And raa shows up again when it says to, it's to be, um, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. So there's two words there, find enjoyment. The find is this raa. And what raa means is to seek, to examine, to spy. To reveal. It's, it's literally this idea that you're sort of discovering something. You're looking at something. You're, you know, later on, he uses the word consider. You're considering something. He says, look and seek. And the second word, enjoyment, is the word tov, which means good. And by good, it's those things that are kind. Those things that are morally good. It's goodness. And so what he's saying is the thing that I found is to eat and drink. You're going to live life. You're still going to have to do that and to seek good, to seek the moral good, to seek the kindness of the world, the things that are good in life. 
So what he's saying is, don't chase after all these things that you think are going to satisfy your appetite, but instead... Go after the things that God has given you as a gift. Discover those good things and seek that. In fact, that's what he says afterwards. Now that you have that in your mind, listen to what he says. Um, Eat and drink and find enjoyment. Seek good in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. God has given him this. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in this toil. This is the gift. This is the third time he says it. This is the gift of God that he keeps saying, this is something God's given you. There's good things that God has given you in life and you should be seeking those things, not chasing after the things you think are going to make your life better. When, uh, this whole idea that it, it, it comes in and it says that you've been given a portion or this lot in your life. It, it's how many of you uh, chose to be a, a born in America? Yeah, you guys didn't. You're, you stayed here. But did, when did you choose to be American? You were born here, right? It wasn't a choice. It was your lot in life. It was your portion. Now, some of you might be immigrants. Some of you might have said, I, I've chosen to be American, to move to the United States. I've chosen to be there. But the bottom line is each of us are given certain things. The family you're in, that's your lot in your life. That's your portion. It's given to you by God. It's not equal. It's not equitable. Not all of us have the same families. Not all of us have the same countries we live in. That's not equity. And yet God gave it to us all differently. And what he's saying is, find enjoyment, find the good, seek the good with what I've given you, the thing you have. Have that perspective to be looking for the good in that. Some of you may know the name Viktor Frankl. He was, uh, he was a, a gentleman who studied the whole concept of psychology, and, uh, but his growing up, he was a, was a young man just starting his business in Germany. And in the process, the, the Nazis came in and they took away his business. They took away his home. They captured his entire family and they took him to Auschwitz. And at Auschwitz, his family came up. And of the roughly 10 individuals in the family, nine of them were taken off to the left to go to the gas chambers. And they were killed that day. Victor was sent to the right to go into the slave camps and to work. And in that process, he lost his business. He lost his home. He lost all of his belongings. He lost his family. Even as they made him go, they made him strip down, took away all of his clothes. And they even shaved his body and took away all of his hair. They took away everything they could possibly take away from him. And then he is famous for this quote. This quote that he stops and looks at the world with perspective. And he says, everything can be taken from man. This is a guy who knows. Everything can be taken from man, but one thing. The last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. 
Viktor Frankl learned by going through the concentration camps and having everything taken from him that there was one thing they couldn't take from him, his ability to choose how to respond to any given circumstance. This is exactly what's being said here. God has given you a situation. God has put that in your life right now. And he's stopping and he's saying, go seek for the good in that. Find that. Don't do the side this comparison. And the, the, the idea that you're going to somehow look at your life and look at somebody else and go, well, I don't have what they have. That's not his point. His point is instead to accept that lot, to literally find joy in that lot, to accept this lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied um, with joy in his heart. If you're doing that, if you're seeking after the good. All right, let's jump into chapter six. Uh, we're going to jump to verses seven and nine, uh, seven to nine. All the toil of a man... F- All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity, hevel, and a striving after wind. So what he's saying here is this idea that your appetite will not be satisfied. And appetite right there is the word nepesh. And the word nepesh literally means the things you crave. It's, it, it's often translated throat. It's almost the idea that you just have too small of an opening with a mouth and you just want to put things down the throat. It's like, I want it so bad, I just want it. And it's not just food. It's not the appetite. And right now, just before lunch, it's always bad to talk about that. But this appetite is for the things you crave, the things you long for, the things you want. That's Nepesh. It's, it's this desire of the flesh. I've told this story before, but it fits right here. Eugenie and I oftentimes love to go drive around a city and get a feel for it. We drive through different neighborhoods and see how other people do their yards, have their homes. But we've learned over time to go at a certain time in the evening, early evening, that we refer to as the witching hour. The witching hour is when it's getting just dark enough that inside the house, people turn on their lights so they can see because it's getting a little darker, but they haven't yet closed the curtains, which means when Eugenie and I are driving through the neighborhood, we can look right into your homes and we can see them all lit up and we can see what you have. And so for us to drive around in nice neighborhoods, we get to see how other people live. We get to see that new chandelier and that's really nice. Oh, did you see that kitchen's completely remodeled? That's a cool kitchen. That's awesome. And we notice the landscaping. We notice the cars out front and we see all the things and it doesn't take us long before pretty soon we're coveting in our hearts and we're no longer happy. We're actually sad. We're looking at our life and going, man, what do we got? We got almost nothing. Look at everybody else. They got newer, nicer than us. Comparison breeds discontent. It's a proverb. It's a phrase that we all know that when we look at that, it actually makes us sadder. And along the way, God is going, don't do that. Instead, seek the good things that God has given you, whatever your portion may be. As we look at this, all the toil of man is for his mouth, for his appetite. And yet his appetite is not satisfied. Even if you had it, it doesn't satisfy you. It doesn't satisfy you. In fact, that last part of nine, the wandering of the appetite, 
This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The where your appetite goes for all kinds of things. We're not just talking about food. We're talking about all the things we crave as human beings. And I hope it's not just me. I hope you're just terrible too with that. Wish the worst on you. Um, in James, uh, James chapter 1, verse 14, it talks about this. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And this is New Testament Greek, so it's not going to be nepesh, but it's the same meaning that we're enticed by this appetite that we have. Verse 15, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Seek that good coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. When uh, what he does next in chapter seven, in verses one through 13, the first part of seven, if you look at it, it's all Proverbs. He's come in and he's laid out some Proverbs and we're not going to look at each of those Proverbs. You can be grateful for that. But what you will find is you find this good and better showing up again. So in verse one, a good name is better and better is the word tobe. So when it says discover or seek good, that enjoyment word, that's that tobe. And here it is again. A good name is tobe. It is better. It is good. A good name is good. It's better than precious ointment. So he's giving a list of things that are better. So he's saying, seek good. And then he gives a list of things to seek. In verse two, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And three, sorrow is better. And this is still the same word. Sorrow is good. It's better than laughter. And we could go through all of those proverbs and we would find him. He's giving this list of things that are good or better than the things we normally chase and think are good. And all the way down to verse 13. In 13, it uses that word ra'ah again. That seek, to see, to discover, to examine. And it says, consider the work of God. Seek the work of God. Look at the word of God. Examine, reveal, spy out the work of God, what God is doing. But then look at the second half. It says, who can make straight what he has made crooked? Who can make straight what God has made crooked? This is a troubling verse. In fact, it showed up earlier in chapter 1, chapter 115. It says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, in this case, we're going to come back to this in a little bit about what the crookedness is and the things that are crooked in life. But the general idea here is just this idea that we as human beings on this planet don't have very much power. We don't have much authority. We don't have much ability to actually take something that's crooked and wrong, that oppression and injustice. Many times we're left helpless and we can't do much about it. And especially if God has made something a certain way, you can't do anything about it. You can't make it straight. It's put as a question though, who can make straight what he has made crooked? How many of you are crooked? Anyone? There's two. There are three. I got three crooked ones. Watch those guys. There we go. There's a few over here. Was that a half? You're only half good. Yeah. So here's the deal. And I do this all the time, but it makes me feel better. So join with me in this quick survey. How many of you are sinners? 
Yeah, and most of you are raising your hands. Those of you who aren't are lying right now. And so you've just joined the list. Therefore, we're all sinners, right? We're all crooked. So when we read a verse like that, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. If I'm crooked, can I ever be straightened? And we're going to answer that question in just a second. But it's this idea that we look at so that even if we were to go to, say, Romans 3.23, we'd come to the same idea where it says, all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when we talk about crookedness, we think of ourselves. We think that includes me. Then in verse 25 and 26, we're going to jump down to that. It says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, some of you men might be reading that and go, I knew it. Women are evil. I must avoid women at all costs. This is a reference to the woman folly, which in essence is a little bit similar to the word hevel. It's the idea that it's a waste. It's, it's, it's vanity to go after that. In fact, it's worse. It's destructive. Those are the words that are listed. This passage, by the way, as we read it, has some really clear similarities with the woman folly in Proverbs. In chapter 5, it says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Now, this isn't speaking about women. It's a characterization of folly. And in Proverbs, we have the characterization of wisdom, all the things that are good. And that too is a woman. So don't get hung up on the sexuality of the question or the gender of the question. This is an issue that it's used as a woman because there in Proverbs, the teacher is teaching a young man. And at that point, it's not going to seem as sensuous and seductive to him if he talks about a man that's trying to seduce him. So he uses the woman term as the prostitute that will distract him and pull him away. It's the folly. It's the things of this life. that are going to grab you and destroy your life and, and distract you. Instead, it's wisdom that we should follow. And so this part of 26, uh, that what he's saying is just that, that it's more bitter than death, that if you're chasing folly, it will come after you. And Proverbs it shows up again in chapter seven and chapter nine. You can go back and read those later. But there's something else in here that it it talks about um, in in verse 26. I I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetter. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. He who pleases God escapes her. How does that work? The idea is, is that if we look at Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 6 says, um, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, without looking towards God, without seeking God, it's impossible to please him. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So what's happening here is the person that believes there is a God, believes that God is good, and believes that God has given him a portion in life and is seeking after that portion and stops and says, I'm going to say no to my appetites. I'm going to say no to the things that are tripping me up, the things that I keep stumbling into, and instead I will have faith that there's a good God and I will seek him and I will follow him. That's the one who pleases God. He has to believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's the concept being laid out. And that's why I say, don't see Ecclesiastes as just this guy that's all confused and in a depression. He's literally dealing with deep theological truths here that play out. Now, last verse, we made it to the end. We skipped a lot, but we're now at the very last verse of chapter seven. Chapter, uh, verse 29. See, and this is Ra'ah. This consider, this look, examine. See, this alone I found. That God made man upright, not crooked. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And this is that part where in Genesis 1.31, after God had created everything, he created the heavens, he created the earth, he created the plants, he created the animals, he created male and female. Then he steps back from all of creation and he gives those words. Anybody know them? God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. He stops and he says, this is God who knows all and he puts a value judgment on it and he says, it is all very good. God made man upright. God made man, man made a mess. It doesn't take the very first couple very long at all before they have gone after their appetites and begun to pursue other things. Sound like a familiar pattern? That's what's playing out here. That this, this comes in. God has made man upright, but man has made a mess. We keep trying to get back to God the way it was supposed to be. We keep reaching, trying to climb the ladder, find things that are going to satisfy, try to get our life back to the the way it was meant to be. But we're crooked. We're broken. And the question is, who can make it straight? Hopefully you have that answer quick at hand. Who can make it straight? If you're crooked, who can make you straight? Jesus. Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Christ himself was God's answer. Even as we're reaching out to heaven, trying to find the things that are going to satisfy us, we can't get there. There's nothing you can do. But meanwhile, as you're trying to climb the ladder, God's coming down the ladder, a different ladder, and he's showing up where you are. He's showing up to meet you in your mess to grab a hold of you. That part is a beautiful part of this story. That Colette, as he does this, he he doesn't even know all this. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit that we have that speaks to us. We have the complete Bible. He doesn't even have the full Old Testament. His book is one of the books in the Old Testament. We have the complete Bible right here. The church, a body of believers all coming together that, that is following Christ together. Um, smartphones. We have smartphones. He didn't have a smart. Oh, I guess that's not on the list. But uh, just checking to see if you're listening. The idea is, is number four. So we have the Holy Spirit. We have the full scriptures. We have the church of Jesus Christ. And we have Jesus Christ. 
Coalette doesn't have that. He's looking at truths and principles, but he can't put the bow on it because he doesn't know what the bow is yet. And now we know. Now we have that thing that is good, that when we're seeking from God, that's it. But even in the process of knowing this, we're still slow to discover God's goodness. It's not natural for us to be looking for his goodness, his gifts. We're distracted, we're disinterested, we're dysfunctional. That we're really not good at this game. He, on the other hand, is attentive, he's engaged. It's not like when we're trying to find him, he's trying to hide. It's just the opposite. He knows exactly where we are. He is reaching out to us. He is pursuing us. He is patient. He is forgiving. He is gracious. He is good. Our God is good. And in this goodness of this God, he chooses to send us his son who will come as a living sacrifice, who is then put to death. His shed blood then covers all of our sin and takes that which was crooked and makes it straight again. That in Hebrews, it says we can boldly come before the throne because we are now righteous, white as snow. He has made us good, not because of anything we are. So four things to close. Four little applications, things to trigger in your head. You don't have to write down all four, but if you've got a pen and paper, write down at least one, the one that God puts to your mind. And so one of these four, maybe all four, are things that I think we've just learned. The first one is stop the vain toil of chasing after lesser things. He gives a list all throughout of the better things and says, seek the good things that God has put into your life. Pursue the good things. Have that mindset, the last of the human freedoms is your ability to discover those good things or just go, oh, my life's a mess. It's all terrible. Or you can recognize that God has given you gifts and he's got goodness there. So stop the vain toil after the things that you think are gonna make you happy. They don't. You're gonna leave them all behind. That's number one. Number two, seek good rather than your appetite. So the passions and things you naturally like, if you find yourself going after stuff and you know it's not good, you know it's destructive to you, you can almost use that as a trigger warning. They'll go, whoa, there's my appetite. That's my flesh. That's in the nepesh. That's the part that's going to destroy me. And instead, that says I need to stop and my brain is going the wrong way. I need to be looking for the good things in life, those things that God has brought to me. So seek good rather than appetite. Number three is be good. This idea of being good is that you cannot do it on your own. In order to be good, you have to allow God to begin to transform your life. The idea of repentance is you're going down one way towards your appetite. You stop and say, I need to stop this. I need to go another way. And you turn towards God. And as you seek God, he begins to transform you. He changes you. The reason why we can come boldly before the throne is because he's done that work. If you don't know Jesus, this is not possible. To to know that Jesus has died for your sins, has given you eternal life, comes with you turning and saying, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. That God, I need you. That I'm making a mess of everything that I'm doing in my life and I can't make it better. But who can make it straight? Jesus can. Seek good, then be good. The only way to be good is to let him have your life. And the last one is to good, do good. That story of the Good Samaritan, you have the priest and the Levite, sees the guy that's beat up on the side of the road. They look at the situation, they know what good is. 
but in the process, they let their appetite. I don't know what they were doing, whether they were late for a meeting, whether they didn't want to get their clothes bloody, whether they just didn't want to be inconvenienced, but they gave in to their appetites and they went another way. And the guy that Jesus points out is the one that stops and says, wait a minute, the God who has been good to me, I will use my life to be good to others. And he goes out and does the good. And that's the answer to the question of, and who is my neighbor? Love God, love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? The one who does the good. Why do we do good? Because the spirit of the living God who is good is whispering to us a better way. That's it. I want to finish with Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Many of you guys know this verse, but this is how it goes. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, the good things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I want to read it one different way, and I want to take away just the idea of of the, the goodness, and I want to put Jesus in this verse. Finally, brothers, to the one who is true, to the one who is honorable, the one who is just, the one who is pure, the one who is lovely, the one who is commendable, the one who is excellent and worthy of praise, think of him. Seek good, seek Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just thank you. I thank you that even as I make a mess of my life, you are still reaching out for me and you are bringing good gifts into my life and you are bringing Jesus to me. You have brought salvation to my life. I am so grateful, Lord, for your love, for your grace, for your patience, but mostly this morning for your goodness that you aren't a corrupt God, you aren't an inept God, you aren't a powerless God, but instead you are a good God who is active and engaged in my life today, this morning. Lord, I would ask for any in this audience who may be struggling, caught up in their appetites, caught up in their sin, that this morning you would begin to just pull pull them away from that and replace it with your goodness. And Lord, for those who may not even know you, that they would feel your arms wrap around them, that they would feel your love and and your embrace of them and your calling to them. And Lord, that they would find you this morning. And Lord, for all of us as a church located on a street in a town in California, that we would be bright lights of goodness to a community, that they may see our good works and praise you who are in heaven. We ask these things in your name. Amen.